Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Hello and welcome to this Library of Mistakes podcast. My name is Russell Napier and I'm the keeper of the Library of Mistakes. What is it? What is this Library of Mistakes? Well, it's a room full of books. Yes, one of those things. We have one in Edinburgh, in Lausanne in Switzerland and Pune in India. The Library of Mistakes is owned by Dadasco, a financial education charity based in Scotland. As well as running the Library of Mistakes, it also runs a course, an online course that you can take called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets. And it's in-person variety, which we run in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the course, see the link to Dadasco in the podcast show notes. I'm delighted, absolutely delighted today to have with me Professor Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge. Uh, If the world had ever needed political economists, uh, it really, really needs them today. There are fewer and fewer of them around. Uh, And to back all that up, Helen has written a tremendous book called Disorder, which is what we're here to discuss today. So first of all, Helen, congratulations on the book. Uh, It's a wonderful book for people like me who try to work out what's the real mechanisms going on in the world. I thought I understood it, and then I read your book, and then I realized there was another uh, level to that. Uh, a lot of the focus at this stage in history is on, on your part one of this book, which is about energy. But there are tremendously important things in here for investors. And I just wanted to begin by reading a bit about capital flows, because I've, I've really met very few historians or very few economists who focus on the role of capital flows. But you've done that, uh, and I just wanted to read this bit and, and ask you to comment on it and explain this mechanism uh, to our listeners. Uh, against this backdrop, it is unsurprising that by the mid-1980s, when Labour's bargaining power was decisively weakened, it was the risk of aristocratic, not democratic excess that threatened individual democracy's future. Economically, it could scarcely be otherwise. There never was a possibility that a return to open international capital flows would not significantly magnify democracy's aristocratic features. So can you explain the aristocratic features, the relationship with capital flows? And It's a brave book because you make forecasts. If you want to forecast the future for that relationship, feel free to do so. But anyway, aristocratic features coming from international capital flows and the political consequences uh, which we're all now living with. Yeah, obviously this is a um, a pretty big question, um, Russell. I think that one way of sort of getting a hook into it, so to speak, is to think about the 1920s and then to think about what Keynes in particular wanted to do at Bretton Woods and then think about how the Bretton Woods system unraveled and what the consequences of that were for democratic politics in Western countries by the, the 1980s. So if you go back to the 1920s, certainly by the time in which the gold standard was resurrected, I think you can see um, that there were a number of problems that open international capital flows posed in political conditions of universal franchise. And in some ways, I think you can see that most clearly through what happened in Britain. So if you take, um, you know, like Britain in the second half of the 1920s, constrained um, by the gold standard and the fact that sterling had gone back at the pre-war parity, you get someone like Keynes saying, look, we've got a problem here um, because essentially we're assuming that the, the real economy, the productive economy can adjust um, to the restoration of the 
um, gold standard by doing what it did in pre-universal franchise democratic politics, which is to allow wages to to fall down. But that isn't possible, he said, it, uh, in, under conditions of full franchise representative democracy. He used the phrase wages are sticky. And if you look at what happened in Britain, even after the, the general strike in, in 1926, although the miners, which strike, the miners whose action, strike action was a prelude to the general strike were defeated and went back on lower wages, there was no attempt by the then Conservative government to try to push wages down across the board because they understood the political difficulties um, of that. The second thing I think that would, so I think we can already see there that there was a relationship between um, the position of Labour in relation to an open international economy where capital flows um, were concerned and that international order um, itself. If you then look on the monetary side, you can see in Britain's um, case that um, British monetary policy was very constrained by what the Federal Reserve um, Board did. Even someone like Churchill was sent into near despair when he understood that, um, that, that um, dynamic. Um, and obviously that issue came to a crisis for Britain in 1931 that led in the end to Britain's exit from um, gold. So I think that what you can see from the 1920s, um, well, actually, there's another dynamic that I'll come to in a moment. Um, what you can see from the, um, the 1920s is a growing awareness amongst those who are thinking most seriously about the relationship between the international financial side of things, international financial monetary side of things and, and democratic politics, that so there was considerable potential for, very considerable potential for instability. Um, and that even before the Second World War, if we keep with Britain, there was a realisation that actually there had to be some kind of democratic political control over monetary um, policy, that if that weren't the case, that risks with political stability were being taken. So in 1932, um, you know, it was the Treasury that started to decide interest rates in Britain rather than the um, the Bank of England. And I think that was that was a more important watershed than the later nationalisation of the um, the Bank of England. So the insight that Keynes took into the Bretton Woods negotiations, and I'm not trying to suggest that Keynes's insight dominated the Bretton Woods negotiations because clearly the Americans did, but Keynes's insight, I think, um, was that actually there had to be some protections for democratic politics from open international capital flows, particularly short-term um, flows. Uh, and that, that is why he thought that capital controls had to be a permanent feature of the, the post-war world. And now we know that that broke down in the, in, the, um, in the 1970s. If we just track back again for a moment, though, back to the 1920s, the other issue, which I don't think was one that Keynes thought about in quite the same way, but I think is clearly there, um, is the issue of the ability of rich people, very rich people, to protect their capital from taxation. Um, so if you start at the beginning of the 1920s, you see these governments uh, in Europe, particularly actually in, in France, uh, who want to put, maintain the, the post-war, the, sorry, the First World War high tax regime and take it into the, the peacetime world. And by the end of the 1920s, what they found is, is if they put those kind of taxes on, on rich people, that they can simply move their money abroad. So we see something, I think, that looks like the beginning of like what we wouldn't have been called then tax havens, but might as well be called um, tax um, havens. So the sense that actually democratic politics, in terms of its ability um, to tax people, 
particularly the rich, is constrained by open international capital flows. So I think in a way then, if we skip on to the 1970s, what we can see is, is that in the immediate years after the end of the bread and wood system and the return to financial liberalisation, is that Keynes doesn't really look vindicated in the sense of democracies have some pretty choppy times um, through the 1970s and the 1980s. I mean, Western democracies, as we know, but they they, they endure. There's not a, a deep democratic crisis in the sense of um, causing these um democracies to be terminated in one way or another, like what happened during the interwar years. Nonetheless, I think by the time we get to the middle of the 1980s, so the bit that you just quoted from um, Disorder, is we can see, I think, that the same dynamics are nonetheless causing damage to democratic um, politics. They're making it harder um, for governments to re- be responsive to the demands of labour. And indeed, governments have in some sense taken the opportunity of these new international financial um, conditions to weaken labour's bargaining power um, pretty um, seriously. And again, if we skip on a bit, although I think it's fair to say that the struggles with taxing the rich in the way in which governments might have wanted to do is not so evident in the middle of the 1980s, that actually most of the tax reforms pursued in the 1980s are more complicated than that. By the time that we get into the, the 2000s and the world, you know, like say of companies like you know like Amazon and, and Starbucks, then obviously the, the, the way in which the financial side of the international economy is constructed um, actually makes it very difficult um, for individual governments to, to tax those um, corporations in the way in which they might, um, the, in the way in which they might want to. And through all this, there isn't any way, I think, in which the, um, the, the democratic politics or democracies can really be reformed internally to change any of this. So even if centre government, centre left governments are elected that would like to be more redistributive, quite quickly they find that the financial markets constrain their um, options. In one sense, that's the big lesson that everybody in Europe took from what happened to Francois Mitterrand um, when he in the first two years of of, of his um, presidency. So I think the ways in which it became more difficult to pursue sort of mid 20th century social democratic politics actually in the end became part of the return of the aristocratic excess problem um, in democratic politics. Yeah, I, I think it's wonderful because not many people focus on the role of capital flows in, in doing this. So the chronology for the United Kingdom is we subject ourselves to the open capital account in 1979, but the Conservative government, it's a Labour government that then uh, subjects the uh, the, constri- the government to the constraints of an independent central bank in 1997. So I'm, uh, we'll come on to what this means in the Eurozone in a minute, but generally speaking, is your opinion that these two decisions will be reversed, that we will see less independent central banking, that we will see restrictions on the flow of capital controls, because the aristocratic features of our current system have to be reversed if we just focus on inequality as one of the repercussions of that is the way forward some form of reversal of these two major decisions which as you've just said restricted the ability of governments to perhaps deliver for for labor i'm not so sure about this um i mean i think that it's actually become pretty difficult to undo aristocratic excess dynamics in um in representative um democracies. Uh, I mean, I think like one way of looking at that 
is through the issue of debt. And in the past, you'd say that um, aristocratic excess would lead in one form or another um, to either debt cancellation, cancellation, um, or at least very much lowering the, the costs um, of um, servicing debt. Now, in a way, I guess you could argue that that's what the second of those is what quantitative easing did over the last um, you know, more than a decade um, now. Um, that it was a you know like a form of you know financial repression, perhaps. On the other hand, I think the very fact that quantitative easing proved necessary or appeared to prove necessary anyway um, reflects the fact that actually there became so much debt in the world, so much of that debt was internationalised, so much of that debt was bound up with international financial markets and internationalised banking, that actually retreating from that world of open international capital flows became extraordinarily difficult, if not um, impossible. So, I mean, I, I don't have a really sort of clear set of thoughts about this yet, but my instinct is that actually we should understand this, the monetary turn post-2008 as an alternative way of trying to deal with the underlying um, problem that where the old way of doing it is no longer possible. Having said that, clearly it is also the case that quantitative easing itself both because of the elevated role it gives to central banks in a whole range of then of macroeconomic decision making, essentially becomes a frame for all macroeconomic decision making. Um, and because the outcomes of quantitative easing fuel wealth inequality, actually the method by which we're then dealing with the problem actually also reinforces the problem. This uh, issue of financial repression, which for those listening who don't know, is a way in which interest rates are held low while inflation is high. And there's about 90 minutes more we could say about it, but that's the simplistic uh, approach to it. Uh, it's not yet been achieved without capital controls, has it? I mean, obviously, when, during warfare, that would be pretty obvious. But in that post-war period, 45 to 79, the financial repression that ran then had at its core, and for the reasons that you've mentioned, because of uh, partially because of the concerns that Keynes raised, uh, we haven't yet. So if we're going to financial repression, the odds of capital controls go up, or is there a new way of achieving this repression without some sort of restriction on the free movement of capital? I mean, I just find it, I mean, I'm interested to know what you think here, Russell, but I find it very hard to see that we're going to return to um, restrictions on capital flows without some kind of collapse occurring yeah, first. The kind of a more slightly surreptitious way of doing it is that if I was running the British economy, I could mandate that my savings institutions only owned British government bonds. Mm. Uh, that wouldn't, strictly speaking, be a capital control, but as it interferes with the free movement of capital, mm. it would be a step in, in that direction. So maybe there's a halfway house that may already be underway. If we look at Europe, it's I think fairly clear that certain European savings institutions are being forced to buy their own government bonds yeah. and the other euro members. So maybe there's we're on that path to repression that uh, that has already got some something of the form of capital controls about it. Yeah, I mean there was clearly some 
ways in which what went on during the Eurozone crisis 2011-2012 involved quite a lot effectively of such strong incentives for banks to buy the debt um, of their own sovereigns, um, albeit sometimes by buying it off the European Central Bank. Um, or, well, actually, no, that's not quite right, but... Um, that I think you can you we you can definitely see it in the eurozone. I mean, the only hesitation I would then have is is whether that reflects the particular problems that eurozone dynamics um, create in essentially having a, a currency union amongst what are still politically nation states, and whether it's generalized, whether that um, incentive is generalizable out of the eurozone. Yeah, I mean, that's where I wanted to come next, because, uh, as you said at the beginning, governments have subjected themselves to international capital flows, independent central bankers. But the Europeans have taken a step beyond that uh, in, in attempting to subject 19 countries within the eurozone to this uh, this uh, new central bank, the European Central Bank. So I wanted to read uh, something on the on the euro, which you uh, which you've written in your in your book. Uh, a decade after the eurozone crisis, the EU remained what it had been before the crisis a multi-currency union with stronger EU than Eurozone institutions. The explanations for this outcome is the reality that there was no available political resolution. Muddling through proved a decisive response because it was much less difficult than pursuing remedies. Uh, most people sort of just talk about the single currency as if it's a fact. It's interesting that you describe it as a multi-currency union. Uh, perhaps you could explain that, and, and maybe if you want, say what it means now that we have this geopolitical change in the world, that Europe is stuck with a multi-currency Europe uh, union rather than a, a single currency union. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously um, quite a long and uh, complicated question. But I think if you go back to, um, you know, the 1990s um, and the beginning of um, monetary union within the, the European um, Union, um you can see that the only outlier at the beginning was supposed to be britain so so britain got itself an opt out um from monetary union uh or at least a legal opt out from monetary union in the maastricht um treaty but even there i would say if you look at um major's decision make john major i mean by that john major's decision making at the time, um, and certainly things that have come out in the last um, few years uh, about the decision making of his government when Kenneth, after Kenneth Clark became Chancellor, like in the in the mid nineteen nineties, I think that he still hoped, he still thought that there was a path to take Britain into monetary union. Just he needed time. He thought of it, so. I, I think it's reasonable to say, with a caveat that I'll come to in a moment, that there was a hope um, that a Europe, the European Union could be a single currency European Union. The caveat would have to be that there was obviously considerable resistance in Germany centred on the Bundesbank um, to the idea that Germany was going to be in a currency union with some of the southern European countries, obviously, particularly uh, Italy. So I think on on the, the there's a tension in the existence of 
the monetary union within the European Union from the beginning. On the one hand, there's a clear aspiration that I think even, as I say, the British government post-Thatcher is caught up in. The idea that it should be single European Union, single currency, and deep scepticism, as I say, particularly in Germany, as to whether that is viable, uh, was viable or not um, economically. And then I think what you see through the period from um, 1992 um, through to the the rest of of, um, the decade um, is that the German concerns get blown aside, really, I think, in significant um, part because of Germany's own difficulties in meeting the Maastricht convergence criteria for participating um, in monetary unions. So Germany is not in a position to be that you know, strict and enforcer of the the rules. And on the other side, that the the British position not only hardens into we're staying out of monetary union, but then some other outliers join the club, so to speak. First of all, when the Danes vote down the Maastricht Treaty um, in 1992, and then when Sweden doesn't vote to, to join monetary union. So Denmark ends up with a, a legal opt-out, and Sweden ends up with a de facto um, opt-out. I think if you then move on to like the, the new countries, the Eastern European countries that came, predominantly Eastern European, they weren't obviously all Eastern European, in, in 2004, that poses another set of um, difficulties because it looks like quite a stretch for some of them to join the monetary union with any um, alacrity. Um, nonetheless, I would say until the Eurozone crisis... Um, that pulling in Poland and Hungary, and I'd say Poland is the most symbolically important of those, looked like it was, if not likely, at least possible. So it's really the Eurozone crisis that really then, I think, drives a big demarcation between the late accession countries, if we can call them them. So the Baltics end up joining, but Poland and Hungary move on to a path that's much further away um, from any prospect of entry. And I think if you then look at what happened at the point of the British referendum, the Brexit um, referendum, you can see people, and I'd say uh, certainly people in the commission, if you look at Juncker's um, first um, State of the Union um, speech after um, the British referendum, who think this is the opportunity really to force the issue and say, look, we're supposed to have a single currency for the European um, Union. Um, And now the British are going, we've got the chance to to sort this um, out. Um, and Macron, I think, wanted to use that as a means essentially of saying either you join up to the people like the countries like Poland and Hungary or you're out or you're into a second, you know, like um, second tier. But none of that comes to pass. Um, and I would say that in some ways then the really sort of revealing decision is the decision that Merkel makes um, in 2020 when she's agreeing to the EU recovery fund because she finally says, okay, we'll have some common European debt. Um, But she makes it common EU debt and not common Eurozone debt. And by doing that, she tangles up the non-Eurozone members into the very Eurozone reforms that Macron's been pushing for rather vainly, you know, like since 2017. And at that point, I think it becomes really difficult to start disentangling 
um, saying, okay, we're going to have monetary union as the core of the European Union, and then these and then these other states um, round the um, outside. And from that point, I think it's it's not that that's the point in which we can say, look, a multi currency union was here to stay, but it was it it, it was almost like an acceptance of the fact that resolving the tension um, between the non-members and the members is gone as a possibility. And Brexit was the opportunity really to rectify that in terms of turning it away from a multi-currency union because Britain was obviously the most significant non-Euro member. And if Brexit couldn't be turned into that opportunity, I think it's quite difficult to see where the next opportunity for resolving that is coming from, particularly if you look at the way now, I would say, in which Poland's position in the European Union, in terms of political influence, um, has strengthened considerably as a result of the Ukrainian crisis. I mean, your book is very clear that uh, this lacuna of power at the centre forces more power upon the ECB and, to quote, has led to overt political interventions by the ECB, most notably in 2011 in Greece, 2015 in Greece, and the destruction of the Berlusconi government. All, let's just say the ECB played a rather large role in all of those, and and these things were necessary because it's not a unitary political or fiscal state. We have uh, another Italian election coming up next year, I'm sure you're aware, that uh, if we put La Liga The brothers of Italy and Forza Italia together, they're polling 48% of the vote, which in the history of Italy does suggest that they're probably heading for for par. Is there another period? I mean, as you've just said, this this post-Brexit opportunity to centralise things or to tighten things has passed. Are we due another confrontation now with the ECB once again being the only political force to discipline a a government of Italy, which uh, it's, it's not committed to leaving the euro or the European Union, but it's committed, as was the Le Pen presidency or the Pen candidacy, to making Italian laws supreme over European law, which is tantamount to the same thing. So are we, is the ECB going to be back in the front line of overt political intervention sometime in the next 12 months? I, I think that Italy is such an um, important part of the story of what's happened to um democracies uh, over the last um, decade and particularly obviously like eurozone um, democracies and i think if we look at the sequence of events since 2011 though i would say it has a prehistory in the in the 1990s but if we stick with the what happened from 2011 we have that intervention from the the ecb that sets in motion the end of um, Berlusconi's um, premiership. And then what we see is a kind of pattern in Italian um, politics where they have a general election every five years and some form of government, some coalition is cobbled together after um, that. More often than not, uh, involving either a technocratic prime minister and or a technocratic finance minister regardless of the party that's actually the parties that have actually won the um election uh and then that doesn't last uh, and something more explicitly technocratic comes in its place and obviously that's what we've got in in spades in some sense at the moment with um with draghi mario draghi um its um government in um italy and i think that part of the sort of tacit politics of that 
is essentially still that uh, if Italy is going to receive support for its debt from the European Central Bank, there has to be a government, at the very least a prime minister and a finance minister, that is acceptable to the European Central Bank and implicitly, I think, acceptable to the German government um, as well. So I think it's pretty easy to see the same kind of dynamic playing out after the next Italian election, general election, as did the the previous one, in which the parties that are deemed Eurosceptic and to the right, you know, then the Five Star Movement and La Lega, and now uh, the Brothers of Italy and, and, and La Lega, win the most votes, uh, that they're pushed into a government that has got some technocratic aspect to it and that it doesn't last very long and then we're back to some kind of um, either grand coalition government between the centre-left and the centre-right or an explicitly technocratic one like um, Draghi's. And actually what happened in the last Italian cycle is that both of those outcomes happened at different points after the April after the 2018 um election. So I would be surprised if we see anything that is as avert as the ECB's intervention in 2011 um, was. But I think that the necessity of an Italian government having ECB support is now the sort of tacit rule of Italian politics. It must be observed in one way um, or another. Okay. Um, all the Italians listening to this can send their opinions to the Library of Mistakes on that particular issue. Uh, another remarkable part of your book is swap lines. And uh, that's a sentence I thought I'd never use. But uh, so many people in my own industry, economists, historians, uh, don't even mention swap lines. But I think they are uh, really important as to how the word works. And you deal with it. And I just wanted to read another bit of your book on, on this issue and, and let you explain that consequences, which I think most people don't really understand. Only on the 9th of August 2007 did the mechanisms of the entire complex funding system on which banks depended dramatically break down. From that day, the international monetary and financial system ceased to function without systemic support from the American Central Bank. Uh, And that may refer back to then, but since then, every time we have a crisis, it's huge swap lines go out from the US Federal Reserve. Uh, I'd like you to comment on that. And really in the context of, you know, every question I'm asking you has got about a one hour answer, Helen, you're doing very well, (laughs) keeping them so short. But what that means for the dollar standard in a world where potentially, potentially, according to Janet Yellen, we're heading back to a bipolar world. Are these swap lines the ties that bind in a world of the international dollar uh, and try to bind everybody back into the U.S.? And uh, try answering that question in five minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, well, as you've said already, um, Russell, it, it, it's very clear that at certain crisis moments after 2007, 2008, that these swap lines are really consequential when they are there and when they're not there. And to give two examples, I would say um, there isn't, a way out, I think, of the Eurozone, of the problems it faced in 2011 in particular. Uh, but going into 2012, without the, the dollar swap lines that the Federal Reserve you know, supplied. And if you, if you track 
um, the relationship between the problems that the the Southern European countries had um, in with the bond spread. So essentially, trying to keep um, the interest rate on which that they could do sovereign bond um, borrowing below seven percent, and the amount of dollar swaps that the Federal Reserve um, were providing to the European Central Bank to provide to North European banks, they're pretty strongly related, you know, to um, each other. And that I think is no, that is not a um, coincidence. I think if you look at a, a crisis moment in which the absence of dollar swaps is pretty consequential, it would be Ukraine in 2013-14, that um, Ukraine was in deep financial crisis in the latter part of 2013. I mean, you could argue that actually Ukraine had been in permanent financial crisis since 2008, but it was in a particularly intense moment of that um, crisis. And Ukraine was not the recipient of dollar swaps from the, the Federal Reserve. And Yanukovych turned to Putin for financial support. Uh, and once he'd done so, then the EU associate membership agreement that his government had negotiated you know was was put aside and again the set of events that lead to the Crimea being annexed put into um, motion so I think that it's important to see the ways in which the the Federal Reserve Board's um, willingness to provide dollar swaps really really significant really really necessary condition of of the eurozone countries and earlier, I would say Britain as well, managing the crisis well into the well into the 2010s, and not just what happened in 2007, 2008, but also the fact that in making decisions about whether or who to provide those dollar swaps to, the Fed was playing a de facto geopolitical role. Um, and then there's a big question about China. I remember at some point when I was writing the the third um, chapter of the um economic part of the book and i was having some issues about how to structure um the narrative and i kind of like ripped up the structure that i'd started with and changed it to the one that i've ended up um with and i was doing the china part which i decided to frame around um china's strength and china's weaknesses being a part of in some sense the burden of the world economy um, in the in the 2010s and I remember sort of having this epiphanal moment and I was thinking well the real question is is like is in the moment of crisis the Federal Reserve going to provide a dollar swap to China um, and then the, I got caught as you might have seen from the preface in writing the book in, when the pandemic started and then had to do some more you know, rethinking uh, about a few things um, and then obviously in that financial crisis in March 2020, this issue really does come up. It wasn't just sort of, sort of this abstract, what happens in that crisis? Does the Fed um, help China or not? It was a real question. Um, and the answer, of course, was fudged. It, was a, it wasn't a swap line, but it was a mechanism that could do the same thing or something of the same thing if... if um, if, if necessary. And I think it, it was a really interesting moment because it means that actually whilst um, there were so many dynamics in play that were yanking the US and China apart, um, this is obviously still the Trump 
you know, like presidency. I know that there'd been the preliminary trade um, agreement, but things were getting um, more confrontational about Hong Kong at that point than they'd um, previously been between the US and China. There was something else that was actually pulling in the cooperation um, direction. And then that suggested to me that the the, the level of uh, financial integration in the in in the world economy, at least amongst um, the big economies, was such that actually there wasn't really any alternative um, to that. So, so the world has marched on since 2020, and you'll be aware of Janet Yellen's incredible speech at the Atlantic Council on April the 13th on friend shoring. Uh, and not just for America, but making it explicit that this is uh, with America's allies. Christian Linder made a speech in March talking about Germany only doing trade and business with people who share Germany's values. So one of the, the, the themes of your book is that Europe has been split internally, split from uh, from America in terms of energy politics. Is Putin's invasion of Ukraine, has it changed everything? Has it, has it widened or narrowed the gap within Europe on energy politics? And is it now, now that Janet Yellen can refer to friends shoring and Christian Lindner can talk about values is this problem now solved? Is Germany now back under the control of the United States of America? And, the, you know, America, you point out in the book, Americans were quite worried that Germany or Mrs. Merkel spent more time talking to the Russians and the Chinese sometimes than the Americans. So once again, uh, you know, uh, how, how on earth do you answer that in, in a short period of time? But we're, we're, uh, if you were writing another chapter post the events of the Ukraine, would you now say that actually Europe is back under the control of uh, the United States of America? I think this is still a really open question. Um, um, I, I think just on a more general sense, I would say that that there's a lot of talk of this friendshoring and you know values, and I'm generally quite sceptical um, about that. And whatever else has happened um, in terms of the US-China economic relationship in the last couple of years since or well, since March 2020 there's obviously also you know been a, a deeper engagement from Wall Street over the last two years or so than there was um, previously so I'd say that you know like on the financial side that actually that moment in March 2020 has had has got some continuity and other areas on the financial um, side and I think it's just completely unrealistic. Uh, for anybody to think that um, Western countries uh, can, where energy is concerned, say, okay, we're just dealing with friends here. I mean, quite simply, there's just not enough democracies in the world that produce enough energy um, in, for that to be, um, for that to be, uh, uh, for a moment, uh, you know, a viable um, position. A, a great deal of the energy situation. For Western countries, I mean, I know the United States is in a different position because it's also a domestic, big domestic producer. Is pick your poison. Certainly, it is for European um, countries. Now, this issue then of of um, what the war's done to Europe. I mean, I think that there's multiple things that have gone on. The first of them is is that a worldview in Berlin and Paris has shattered, and a worldview in Warsaw, to put it schematically, has been vindicated. Um, and that is that, A, that Russia is a threat to the independence of the um, independent nation states that sit between Germany and Russia, 
uh, and B, that energy is a weapon that Putin was using and continues um, to use to undermine the security of those states not uh, and to um, divide European countries from um, each other. So in that sense, I think there's no return to the world as it was prior to the, the 24th of um, February. Um I mean, Macron will never be able to make a speech again, I think, in which he suggests that European sovereignty depends upon um, you know, resetting relations with Russia and talks about Europe as Russia as part of European civilization. Even if he hasn't really changed his mind about that, he can't he can't say that. One of the things that jumped out, yeah. which I, I'd missed at the time, was that when the first shipment of, of gas from America, shield gas, arrived in Poland, the prime minister of Poland said, or the president said, no, we are truly a sovereign independent yeah. nation, which is just st- a stunning comment, which I would missed. And as you say, there are these two views within Europe, and one of them has been has been vindicated. And- yeah. So that's that's a, that's the thing. I think I think that, that, that there's no way back to the way to the the assumptions around it. On the other hand, I would say um, that there's still really difficult. I think unresolved questions for the European countries about how to deal with the energy situation as it pertains to Russia and as it pertains to Ukraine's independence. And that is, I think it is unclear at best as to whether European countries can really retreat from the gas relationship with Russia. Obviously, um, they can start buying more you know, liquid natural gas, including obviously Amer- American natural gas. But for the Germans to do that, given they've got no liquid natural gas ports, that's going to take at least the time in which the ports are going to be built. And then there's the fact that there's just too much competition already for so this, this supply. This is- it's just create a split in Europe. This 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 decision over Russian oil and availability of Russian oil, or sorry, mm. non-Russian oil, is this the next schism coming along politically in Europe? The willingness to accept it or the unwillingness to accept it? Well, I think then it, then it ties back to the question of the war itself. Is it the case that? Um, you know, I think you could say that. All European countries plus the US are signed up to the idea as a minimum that Ukraine should not lose this war. Even Schultz, I think, is sort of even privately committed to that position. But what does that mean when you translate that from a phrase into specifics? And I suspect it still means very different things in Berlin and Paris than it means in. Warsaw, and that given that over the last few weeks that the Russian military position seems to have strengthened somewhat and the Ukrainian position deteriorated, um, that makes this even harder question than it was six weeks ago, and it was still pretty hard, I would say, um, six weeks uh, ago. So I think there's still a conflict between the different weight that European countries put on Ukraine's independence and the weight that they put on um, 
the medium term prospects of being able to restore some kind of energy relationship with Russia. And I think in Germany, you can see the pressure from German industry about gas in particular. Is it still going to be considerable to say that we can't give this up? To give this up is profoundly to change the German economy, um, given the importance of gas to certain German industries, not least obviously the chemical um, sector and the importance of those sectors to the um, the German economy. So this, the schism might come on the terms that Europe tries to force Ukraine to accept in terms of peace with Russia. And I that- think that is true, but I think then the complications, and this brings the Atlantic issue obviously back into it again, is, is it's not so clear how much autonomy, even uh, if that the French and the Germans will have in um, in dealing with this. If you go back to what happened after 2014, um, so after the Crimea you know, annexation, Germany and France um, did take the initiative and at least on the diplomatic side, I think the military side is more complicated, but on the diplomatic side, France and Germany took the initiative. The Obama administration and David Cameron's government let them. The Minsk II Accords were the, um, you know, the result of that. But there's no way that the, the Americans and the British are going to, in particular, obviously the Americans, uh, are going to cede again, I think, um, to France and Germany, the initiative on how to deal with Ukraine's future. It's not it's just it's not plausible um any longer um and aside from anything else ukraine has just put up far too much resistance successful resistance it's become uh, a symbol of something as well i think um for the french and the germans to be able to go back to the position of saying we de- we deal with what the parameters are um over ukraine that 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 can't happen any longer and so I think then the tension becomes that the, the 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 energy incentives, particularly for Germany, of trying to hold on to something of that relationship with Russia, particularly where gas is concerned, remain in place. And yet the autonomy that Germany has for dealing with the Ukraine um, issue, both within the European context and within the NATO context, is much, much reduced to what it was after 2014. I want to finish by saying all the things we didn't have time to talk about, which are better, which are very important in your book, China, the Middle East and Europe's potential role in the Middle Middle East, uh, the, the schism between France and Germany on activity in the Middle East, Turkey, which I'd love to have discussed mm-hmm. had we had time. But this is good news because it means anybody who wants to discover the answer to these things has to buy your book, <laughs> Disorder, Hard times in the 21st century. I, I think it's essential reading for any investor. I, I think it's probably essential reading for any citizen as well who really wants to understand uh, how the world works. I want to thank you for, for writing it. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. Thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Russell. Thanks for listening. And to explore the new Library of Mistakes in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our books and keep up to date on what we're up to, do follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice.